The Murder Shelf Book Club contains disturbing content related to real-life crimes. Listener discretion is advised. I met with Secretary Cecil, whom I know to be in disgrace. Lord Robert, I was aware, was endeavoring to deprive him of his place. With little difficulty, I led him to the subject, and after my many protestations and entries, that I would keep secret what he was about to tell me. He said the Queen was going on so strangely that he was about to withdraw from her services. It was a bad sailor, he said, who did not make for port when he saw a storm coming. For himself, he perceived the most manifest ruin impending over the Queen through her intimacy with Lord Robert. He was, therefore, determined to retire to the country, although he supposed they would send him to the Tower before they would let him go. Lastly, he said they were thinking of destroying Lord Robert's wife. They had given out she was ill, but she was not ill at all, and taking care not to be poisoned. Ambassador Quadra, from Amy Robsart, A Life and Its End, by Christine Hartwig. Welcome, Murder Bookies, to the Murder Shelf Book Club podcast. I am Jill, your host, and I bring you the best true crime books every other week. This is Episode 72, Done to Death by Slanderous Tongues, Part 2 of my trilogy on the death of Amy Robsart and Elizabethan Mystery by Sarah Beth Watkins. So, Murder Bookies, I am back from Crime Con 2023 down in Orlando. I'm truly exhausted. <laughs> sure you understand. I am going to try to give you my reflections, and I'm going to try to avoid using words like wonderful and amazing, although they really do apply. Primecon Orlando was a peak experience for me. If you're familiar with psychologist Abraham Maslow, he talked about the hierarchy of needs. I would say I reached the pinnacle self-actualization. This was truly my dream come true after a lot of hard work to make the podcast happen. From meeting other podcasters like Shane of Foul Play, from hanging out with my friend Cheryl McCollum of Zone 7 Podcast, and so many others, it was just amazing to be able, there I said amazing, it was just amazing to have the conversations, the face-to-face connections, the warmth, the humanity, the acceptance. This is such an amazing community. To talk to my murder bookies in person, to meet you, look into your eyes, listen to your responses to the stories that we've been telling, to meeting the authors of the books that I'm covering and will be covering. Getting all of this input on the stories that we have covered and how they were appreciated and received is more than I can ever describe. I'm doing the best I can here. Okay, so some examples. This was the most fun I had. I had two sisters come over and... They were looking for their mom who had wandered off somewhere. And I told them I'd keep an eye out for her. We talked about the podcast a little bit. And then they went off hoping that maybe she had gone to the bathroom. So I'm meeting people, meeting people, talking, explaining the podcast, you know, asking them what books they're interested in and whatnot. And it comes over an older woman with a walker and she's looking for her daughter's. Well, that was interesting. I said, wait, are they two girls, blah, blah, blah? And she's, yes, yes. I said, well, they said you're lost. She goes, I know exactly where I am. Well, a little bit later, the girls came over, found their mom, and we had the greatest laugh. Them insisting that she had gotten lost and her insisting that they had walked away and left her. 
And it was just the most fun. I, I felt like I had known them forever. I hope they had the same experience. I went to the Clue Awards, where they've nominated best true crime documentaries and episodic podcasts and more of the serial length podcasts and the best book of the year and, and all of this. And they had some of the prime speakers sitting with us in the audience. I am sitting with Dr. Baden and his wife and just chilling, having dinner with Dr. Baden. And who comes over? Oh, Nancy Grace pops by. So now I'm with Dr. Baden and Nancy Grace. And then who comes over? Joseph Scott Morgan, body bags. I'm hanging out at the cool kids table. <laughs> it never happened in high school, but it is happening at CrimeCon. <laughs> Just absolutely surreal. I'm, you know, I'm Jill. I've got a podcast. And, and here I'm hanging out with these people. What a wonderful confidence booster for me, too. One of my favorite podcasts, The Prosecutors with Brett and Alice, won the Clue Award. And uh, I did get to chat with Brett later that evening. I said, yeah, 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 I had voted for them. And he said, well, then this Clue Award really belongs to you. You're the ones who did this. You made this possible. And, you know, even though you kind of may know that, to hear him kind of be humble about it and thank me for my input, just like I want to thank you for your input. Now, this this really surprised me. I met two women from Iceland, who, of course, now you realize they're speaking English as a second language. And they were asking me about the podcast. They weren't familiar with it. And I explained, you know, I tell the true crime story, the author's story, and then provide the updates and all of this. And they were elated because they're both dyslexic. So not only English as a second language, but they're trying to read when the words do not cooperate at all. And they said, this is the solution. They will get the sense of what the books are about, but they don't have to spend a year torturously trying to go through them. Well, I brought tears to my eyes. I had never considered that that's something that would be happening with my podcast. And that just lifted my spirits, renewed my drive added to my passion for what I'm doing anyway. We have the most wonderful community of people who are really supportive for each other, who are pulling for each other. I didn't find any, you know, jealousy or or nitpicking or or anything like that. And there were thousands upon thousands of people there and I talked to thousands of people. I just want to thank you again for everything that you have done to make my podcast possible. I see you as you hear me. If you met me in Orlando, I will be putting all of our selfies and photographs up on my blog at www.murdershelfbookclub.com. I'll also be putting some of my behind-the-scenes photos there, including all of those that I met that you may want to know about. Please check them out. And now let's get on to part two. All right, our book today is pure indulgence for me. This blends my love of Tudor history with my passion for true crime. And this is the second installment. So before you listen further, you might want to listen to part one, The Original Staircase. Yeah, I know you murder bookies get it. I know you do. Team Owl, Team Michael. If you're at all familiar with the Kathleen and Michael Peterson story, you will love this one. All right, to briefly recap, in episode 71, we met Amy Robsart, Lady Dudley, wife of Lord Robert Dudley, who began a carnal marriage. That is a marriage of love, unlike most of the members of nobility who had arranged marriages. After lots of religious strife, a coup attempt, arrest, imprisonments in the Tower of London, beheadings for treason, and being thrown in the Tower of London herself, the last of the Tudors, Elizabeth I, comes to the throne in 1558. International debate rages on who the Virgin Queen will wed, and Robert Dudley is at the top of the list, to the horror of his enemies. But he is married to Amy Robsart. 
Then scandal erupts, setting slanderous tongues wagging when Amy is mysteriously found dead at the foot of a staircase on September 8, 1560. Accident? Suicide? Murder? Let's continue to see where the evidence takes us. Now, Robert Dudley is widely rumored to be the Queen's lover, that they would wed, and the criticism is extreme. Had Amy thrown herself down the stairs in desperation and melancholy? Had Dudley himself killed or arranged to have Amy killed to make his way to the throne of England? He also had powerful enemies who adamantly did not want a King Dudley. So had Amy been sacrificed to ensure that this would never happen, tainting Robert Dudley with scandal? Many, many questions, many, many theories, and let's see. As all appropriate steps were taken to see that Amy received all the honors due her at her funeral and in death, rumors and innuendos spread to France. Elizabeth I's ambassador to France was Sir Nicholas Throckmorton. He served first at the court of Francis II and his wife, Queen of France, Mary, Queen of Scots, who happened to be Elizabeth's nearest royal relative. After Francis II's death in 1560, his brother, Charles IX, became king. Now, the real power behind the throne is their mother, Catherine de' Medici. So if you saw the Serpent Queen on stars, that's her, and it is a terrific program. So Sir Nicholas Throckmorton was well-informed on the French gossip flying around the Valois court about Amy Robsart's death. Now, he's a friend of Robert Dudley's, so he writes and he offers him condolences. At the same time, likely in the same diplomatic satchel, he wrote the Marquis of Northampton, telling him of the, quote, dishonorable and naughty reports that are made of ye Queen's Majesty, end quote. Horrified the way his queen was being maligned, Throckmorton was at his wit's ends, furious at being laughed at and at the same time reviled. In this time of direly serious religious division, he writes to William Cecil, the queen's key advisor, and the earls of Pembroke, Bedford, and Northampton, and the Lord Admiral, quote, Some let not say, what religion is this? that a subject shall kill his wife, and ye prince not only bear withal, but marry him. Alas, if I ever see the day, as my heart bleedeth to think upon the slanderous brutes I hear, which if they be not slacked, or if they prove true, our reputation is gone forever, war followeth, and other subdivision of our green country. Help, my lord, to slack these rumors. End quote. A friend of Throckmorton's, Henry Kilgrew, tried to calm him, writing, quote, I cannot imagine what rumors they be you hear, as you write so strange, unless such were here of the death of my Lady Dudley, for she broke her neck down a pair of stairs, which was only done by the hand of God, to my knowledge, end quote. So Kilgrew is really trying to reassure Throckmorton that this was an accident. We get it. She fell. Everything's cool. Chill out. But Throckmorton is still in a panic. He sends his man, Robert Jones, to speak to the queen herself. Now, the day before, which is November 26, 1560, Jones met secretly with Robert Dudley, and he filled him in on the ambassador's frantic fears and that the French queen, Mary Queen of Scots, said, quote, that the queen would marry her master of horse now, end quote, mocking Elizabeth. Well, the next day, Elizabeth herself meets with Jones in a private audience, and she listens to his words of warning about marrying Robert. Jones later reported, quote, she thereupon told me that the matter had been tried in the country and found to be contrary to that which was reported, saying that Dudley was then at court and none of his attempt at his wife's house, and that it fell out as it should. Neither touched his honesty nor her honor, end quote. So she's got her denial down pat, 
But what's really interesting about this, in three sections of this letter, referring to Robert being at court and the attempt at his wife's house and on their honesty and her honor, it is all written in cipher. It's written in code. Why would you do that? All right, this is something of security, but it's still really strange. And what did Elizabeth mean by an attempt at his wife's house? What attempt? I mean, did she know something more sinister had gone on? It certainly makes you wonder. But still, Elizabeth is insisting that Robert is an honest man, an innocent man, and she is honorable as well. And these terrible rumors would eventually cease. But nevertheless, Throckmorton continues to beg that the Quinn do nothing to fuel this fire and abandon any thought of a deadly marriage. So the result. Elizabeth begins to take all these rumors seriously, and she uses her head. She does not rely on her emotions to guide her. She had been planning to raise Robert Dudley to a peerage giving him a title, much as her father, Henry VIII, had elevated her mother, Anne Boleyn, to the Marquess of Pembroke prior to their wedding. Of Dudley's title, Jones wrote a relieved Throckmorton that, quote, The Queen's Majesty stayeth the creation. The bills were made for the purpose, and at the day appointed, when they were presented, she with a knife cut them asunder, end quote. So Elizabeth cancels his peerage. This is a huge statement. She didn't quietly pull the paperwork aside. She does this publicly, cutting up the patent with a knife in public. However, this external pressure did not set well with the queen. Elizabeth was not to be trifled with, and she was not happy to be forced into anything. So Cecil writes to Throckmorton, Quote, I must advise you not to meddle with the matters of this court otherwise, and ye may be well advised from hence. What Her Majesty will determine to do, only God, I think, knoweth. End quote. Throckmorton wisely stopped writing about this. Now, investigating the death of Amy Robstart was a coroner's jury of the inquest, made up of 15 local men of great quality and standing and they assembled on September 9th, the day after Amy's death, and within a week, they would come to a verdict. So it's similar to a grand jury. They were tasked with determining if a crime had occurred. They did not try to deliver some kind of sentence or judgment. However, this verdict is not delivered. There is a delay. Eleven months later, August 1st, 1561, the verdict was registered before the judges of Assize. Assize is a court that sat in intervals in each county in England and Wales, rotating that administered civil and criminal justice. Right? Fun fact, the Assize courts, they last through 1972. Right? That's a long time. Now, why this lag in delivering the verdict can appear sinister, this is actually normal. A verdict would be registered when the assize was sitting in the region, not before. And then it was lodged with the royal court. Can you imagine 11 months of rumors going on now waiting for this verdict? Well, once filed, the verdict was then lost in time. This actual document was located only in 2008 at the National Archives at Coup Palace. And that's when the modern world found out what it actually said. So it tells you once again that history is very fluid. One document pops up and it changes how you view everything. So what did we learn from the written verdict? Well, we learned at Cumner Place, Amy fell down eight steps on a pair of stairs, meaning there were two flights broken by a landing. The quote, circular Newell stone staircase, end quote, continued off the landing at 180 degrees. There is a diagram of a Newell staircase on my blog, which helps a lot to visualize this fall. We do not know if Amy was found on the landing or at the foot of the stairs, nor in the position the body was at the time. There's no chalk outline on the stone floor. And stone, remember, is unforgiving. From the autopsy report, 
Yes, they had an autopsy report from 1560, which I was pretty impressed with. It read, quote, The aforesaid Lady Amy, on 8 September, in the second year of the reign of the said Lady Queen, Nini Elizabeth, being alone in a certain chamber within the home of a certain Anthony Forrester in Cumnor, and intending to descend the chamber by way of certain steps of the chamber, there and then accidentally fell precipitously down the aforesaid stairs to the very bottom and sustained not only two injuries to her head, one of which was a quarter of an inch deep, the other two inches deep, end quote. That is 0.5 centimeters and 5 centimeters respectively. Both of these types of wounds would bleed profusely. The shallowest would cause a tearing of the lower layer of scalp. And the larger, that's a skull fracture, either open, which is compound, or closed and depressed. So we learn that Amy suffered two head injuries and one is severe. But these were not the cause of death. And the autopsy went on. Quote, truly, also, by reason of accidental injury or of that fall and of Lady Amy's own body weight falling down the aforesaid stair, Lady Amy there and then broke her own neck on account of certain fractures of the neck and then died instantly. Lady Amy was found there and then without any other marks or wounds on her body. And thus, the jurors say on their oath that Lady Amy by misfortune came to her death and not otherwise, insofar as it is possible to present for them to agree. For this inquest, both the coroner and the jurors have turned in, affixed their seals on this day. End quote. So they ruled accidental death by fall. Two head wounds, no commentary on blood at the scene. From this autopsy report, we absolutely know that a Spanish report, which said she was found with a knife in her head, was incorrect. But the question arises, what does, quote, insofar as it is possible at present for them to agree, end quote, mean? Did the jurors have trouble agreeing? Did they have doubt? Was this actually an accident? And so here we begin the crux of the investigation. Let's examine what they found and what we can figure out. So I went and I watched videos of falls down the stairs because you have to get a visual on seeing how this thing worked. The vast majority of the falls were with feet slipping out from under a person who lands on their butts and slides, rolls, and twists down the remaining stairs. Now, Amy would have worn a 16th century gown, so she may have tripped over the hem of the gown, and this could have been a header down the stairs. Again, we don't know. I'm only looking at how people fall down the stairs today. So doing my usual research, I went and investigated stairway deaths, and they are the second leading cause of unintentional injury deaths worldwide, according to the World Health Organization. In 2021, 684,000 people died in falls worldwide, and adults age 60 and above are most of the victims. For the non-fatal stair falls, 37.3 million falls are serious enough to require medical attention every year. Sarah Beth Watkins writes, quote, It is estimated that someone falls down the stairs in the UK every 90 seconds, and while most accidents are not fatal, in 2015, 787 deaths in England and Wales were caused by such a fall. Hitting your head is also one of the most common injuries sustained in such an accident, end quote. And for those of you thinking that Amy was a young woman at 28, no, no, no. Life expectancy in 1560 was 30 to 40 years of age. So at 28, Amy Dudley is in late middle age at best. Now, why I cannot swear that this current data is totally relevant to a fall in the 16th century Human behavior is human behavior. I mean, our bodies haven't changed that much. So this manner of death is not uncommon when it comes to accidental injury death. And the majority of stairway accidents are caused by loss of balance. So whether rushing, tripping over something, carrying a parcel, distracted, not watching one's footing, or failing to use the handrail, 
in all likelihood, this increases because we perceive the risk is so low. We don't expect to fall down the stairs. This is always a surprise when this happens. And then I thought, didn't you have a cat? All right, they are notorious for twisting between your legs and getting stepped on. And at this time, mousing is the job that cats did, keeping down the number of mice. So did one cause her to trip? I have no idea, but it is worth mentioning. I was just thinking, what would make a person trip on the stairs? So what are the most likely injuries to occur in a fall down the stairs? An American Journal of Emergency Medicine reports sprains and strains, 32.3%. Would these average people, these jurors, recognize a sprain in a cadaver? Got to ask that. Fractures, 19.3%, such as the face, hands, and wrists. Spinal cord damage, deep lacerations, head and neck injuries, 21.6%, which the autopsy affirms happened to Amy Dudley. Neck injuries occurring in 7.2% of the cases. Injury to the brain, remember one gash was two inches deep, that is definitely into the brain. Broken bones, internal bleeding and lower extremity injuries, such as dislocations. Now, edges of the stairs, like those at Cumner Place, were stone, accounting for 50% of head injuries in falls. Hitting other sharp objects, such as handrails, adjoining walls, or balustradas, which is a decorative railing, are responsible for 13% of injuries. And studies have demonstrated that the most dangerous stairs are the short ones with under 10 steps. I think this is, again, due to that risk assessment. Again, you don't expect to be falling. So from the data, Amy's injuries are consistent with what would be expected in a fatal fall. And she was on stone stairs, which are totally unforgiving. Now, what did jump out at me in the autopsy report? Amy had no bruises. That was suspicious to me, and Sarah Beth Watkins, our author, she raises the question too. I already alluded to the staircase and the murder investigation and trial of Michael Peterson after wife Kathleen was found at the bottom of the staircase in their home, and that it was messy is a wild understatement. But when I read Christine Hartwick's book, Amy Robsart, A Life in Its End, she addresses the lack of bruising. When looking into comparative forensic pathology studies, it is not unusual in falls downstairs that no other wounds on the torso are sustained, which is bizarrely counterintuitive, but this is what the data tells us. But while injuries on the legs are much more common and account for 44% of adult injuries, Amy also didn't have wounds on her legs. Now more on Amy's health. Now, this is reported in diplomatic correspondence that Amy may have had breast cancer, but she was doing better. If this was accurate, it was possible that this may have contributed to her breaking her neck. All right, bear with me a second here. Back in 1956, Professor Ian Aird of the English Historical Review proposed that Amy's death was due to a weakening in her bones which is a side effect of breast cancer, brittle bones. These bones can break under stress, like walking down the stairs, let along a shortfall making them snap. Aird wrote, quote, Spontaneous fractures of the spine or any bone occurs when the bone, weakened and softened by disease, collapses or breaks under the strain of normal muscular effort. Diseased, aged bones may collapse from the slight strain imposed upon them by normal stepping. For example, if the cervical spine suffers in this way, that is the neck, the affected person spontaneously gets a broken neck and may collapse totally paralyzed from the neck down or suddenly dead. Such a fracture is more likely to occur in stepping downstairs than in walking on the level. End quote. Well, that made me think. Now, 300 years after Amy's death in the 1830s, the French pathologist Jean-Georges Creighton, Frederick Martin Lobstein, noticed that some patients' bones were riddled with larger-than-normal holes within the bone itself. 
and he coined the term osteoporosis, that is porous bone, to describe this deterioration in the human bone. I have to ask, did Amy have osteoporosis? Today, we talk about it all the time for older women, but it can occur in 20 and 30-year-olds, not just in postmenopausal women. And remember, the life expectancy in the 16th century is 30 to 40 years old. Now, this theory has been largely attacked by historians in more recent centuries. In 2011, on the British TV show Mystery Files, The Virgin Queen, produced by the University of York, an anthropologist did an experiment with lamb bones. The outcome supported Erd's suggestion. The Avis Erdis neckbones, quote, is more robust than that of humans, but hollowed out as if affected by cancer cells, did crumble under the amount of stress caused even by a shortfall, end quote. So it is plausible that cancer or even osteoporosis weakened Amy's bones and went undiscovered until her neck snapped. Now, something occurred to me. If Amy's bones were weak due to breast cancer, which in 70% of cases metastasizes to other bones, most commonly to the spine, which includes the neck, but also the pelvis, ribs, and long bones of the arms and legs. Breast oncologist Dr. Alyssa Huston-Porter explains in an article written for EverydayHealth.com, quote, Typically, bone pain is the first sign that cancer has spread to the bone. In some cases, however, bone metastasis causes little or no symptoms, and it takes a routine scan or fracture from a minor fall or injury to uncover the bone cancer. Another symptom of metastasis is spinal cord compression. When cancer spreads to the bones of the spine, it can squeeze or press on the spinal cord. This can cause a weakness in the legs or elsewhere in the body, end quote. So could Amy have been experiencing weakness in the legs contributing to the fall as well. Well, we just don't know if Amy's breast malady was cancer or if it had spread, but it seems like another real possibility. I don't think we're stretching here. Given the reports by Spanish Ambassador Quadra, something had been going on with her health and perhaps she was recovering. We've established that Amy was very mobile She's traveling about, which is very arduous in the 16th century. And evidence shows that Robert Dudley was shocked by her death, or was it the fall itself? In another letter, Robert's brother-in-law, the Earl of Huntington, wrote to Dudley of Amy's, quote, trouble. As I end my letter, I understood the death of my lady, your wife. I doubt not. But long before this time, you have considered what happy hour it is which bringeth a man from sorrow to joy, from mortality to immortality, from care and trouble to rest and quiet. And the Lord above worth all the best to them that love him. End quote. Sarah Beth Watkins added, quote, What care and trouble was Amy now at peace from? End quote. Did Huntington know of her illness? Or was this a comment just made to a man who had lost his wife, which is bad enough, but then all the scrutiny and rumors swirling about him? Really sounds more like a platitude shared with a grieving widower and not a smoking gun. All right, a number of other medical causes have been suggested over the centuries, and these include an aortic aneurysm, cervical spondylosis, which is a natural age-related disease where the bones in the neck degenerate. Or it could possibly be tuberculosis of the spine, which causes local pain, tenderness, stiffness, and spasm in the muscles, which I think might have been mentioned, but she was also absent from court. There's also no mention of blood in the autopsy, which certainly would have been present with two head wounds. Now, is this an oversight? I don't know. The depth of the wounds also caught my attention. Two thumbs deep. All right, put your two thumbs together. That is through the skull into the brain from a fall? I don't know. In the report, the coroner uses the term dentis, meaning wounds, but it's also used to describe injury from a blow or violence. Yeah. 
So I'm really not surprised that people wondered and suspected foul play. All right. Did Amy commit suicide? Was she distressed? Did she have melancholy? Was she depressed? Was this the trouble that the Earl of Huntington references in that letter to Robert? Well, it could be, but we're speculating. Alice Seaborn of Cambridge University writes, quote, Self-murder was a mortal sin in the eyes of the church, penalized by prohibition of burial in consecrated ground, and also confiscation by royal authorities of the goods of the deceased and the implement used to commit suicide, whether it belonged to the deceased or not. End quote. In her thesis on 16th and early 17th century suicide, Alexandra Mary Lord of William and Mary University writes that it was deeply believed that, quote, suicide was not simply an attack on oneself, but rather a direct assault upon God and the fellowship of communion of mankind, all of which the suicide was part of. In rejecting life, the early modern suicide directly denied the gift of God. And for these reasons alone, suicide was to be condemned, end quote. She also explained that in S.J. Stevenson's work on suicide patterns in southeastern England during the mid-16th century, the overwhelming majority of people who opted for suicide were destitute, not members of the nobility, as Amy Dudley was. Now, Amy would ask to leave William Hyde's house after saying she was fearful of being poisoned. Well, I can't say that I blame Hyde. That's one heck of an assertion. But to be fair, this wasn't an uncommon complaint when nobles fell ill at these times. Lady Jane Grey swore her mother-in-law was poisoning her when she caught a summer illness. Oh, boy. So is it a realistic concern or a psychological symptom of delusion and or paranoia? This does seem to coincide with Ambassador Von Brunner and Ambassador Quadra's writings about Dudley poisoning his wife, although they seem to be repeating rumors rather than knowing anything firsthand. Had Amy heard rumors of her husband wanting to be rid of her, of divorcing her? Had they contributed to a psychological decline resulting in suicide? Well, further, was Amy mentally ill? Dudley's cousin, Sir Thomas Blount, who I've mentioned before, spoke with Amy's longtime companion and servant, Mrs. Pictou, who stated that Amy was a good and virtuous gentlewoman who prayed every day. She also overheard Amy praying to God for deliverance from her desperation. All right, what desperation? And when asked if suicide was a possibility, Mrs. Pictou responded, quote, No good, Mr. Blount. Do not judge so my words. If you should so gather, I am sorry I said so much, end quote. So is that Mrs. Pictou correcting a wrong impression she had given or realizing it sounded like suicide, backtracking to protect Amy because suicide's a mortal sin and condemned by society? Hmm, I don't know. When Blount presses Mrs. Pictou, she denied that Amy, quote, had an evil toy in her mind, end quote. So she's saying she's not unhinged. After more robust questioning of the staff, Thomas Blount writes, quote, Certainly, as little while as I have been here, I have heard tales, tales of her that maketh me judge her to be a strange woman of mind, and I will tell you at my coming, end quote. But what was she desperate about? What does he mean by a strange woman of mind? What had unhinged Amy if she was unhinged? Was it her husband and the queen? His plans to divorce her? A fatal illness? Had all these burdens depressed her? So a marriage that had begun in love had deteriorated. She and Robert had no children, a terrible disappointment in the era. Her husband was rarely at home and is rumored to be Elizabeth's lover and potential husband all over Europe. All right, that had to suck. She doesn't have her own home. She's depending on friends and family to have a roof over her head. Rumors are flying around that Robert is going to divorce her. This is not ideal. Yet, after Blount's personal inquiry, he concludes, quote, that misfortune has done it and nothing else, end quote. So he says it's an accident. 
Back in the day, the most common forms of suicide were hanging, drowning, cutting oneself with sharp objects, burning, jumping, and starvation. Throwing oneself down the stairs doesn't even appear in the research. Hence, I doubt Amy threw herself down the stairs trying to commit suicide, which certainly wasn't even a guaranteed death, unless she was trying to mask her suicide attempt given the verboten nature of self-killing. If Amy wanted to kill herself, wouldn't she poison herself? I mean, I just, maybe she drowned herself? Amy did insist that everyone leave and go to the fair, leaving her alone. However, counterbalanced with the knowledge that Amy prayed daily, went to church, and participated fully in the Protestant religious life that was the center of everything in this era. And the afterlife ante was upped big time during the reign of Edward VI. Under Catholic doctrine, purgatory is, quote, a place or a state of suffering inhabited by souls of the sinners who are expiating their sins before going to heaven, end quote. So this is a heaven-holding tank of sorts. With prayers, devotions, donations, a soul could move into heaven eventually. Not so under the reforms of Edward VI's Anglican Church in England. In 1552, quote, the official rejection of purgatory had made early modern death more absolute than its medieval counterpart had ever been, end quote. So you went to heaven or you went to hell. There is no reprieve. Now, legally, suicide was a fellow de se, that is, a felon of himself. All one's goods, possessions, money, property were forfeited to the crown, meaning Elizabeth I would take all the Robstart lands Amy had inherited from her parents. Now, I can't imagine that a woman who has basically lost her husband to another woman would act to give her every last belonging in the world to that same woman. Maybe I'm overthinking it, but I don't think so. And the final indignity inflicted on suicides, they molested the corpse. Yes, seriously. For example, quote, one case ruled that the deceased should be carried to some crossway near the town's end and there have a stake driven through her breast and so be buried with the stake to be seen for a memorial that others going by, seeing the same, might take heed, end quote. So you're not allowed a Christian burial. You're buried under the cover of darkness. No mourners are permitted. It's often some undisclosed grave along a public road or a crossroad. So this is not a dignified end at all. It's looking unlikely that Amy committed suicide to me. I mean, could it have just been an act of desperation? A signal that not all was well, that she needed help? Did she throw herself down the stairs to get her husband's attention, much like is reported that Princess Diana did in the early days of her marriage to then Prince Charles? Only in Amy's case, she inadvertently broke her skull and her neck and killed herself, which actually wasn't her goal? Again, we can't know, but I still think that suicide seems like a stretch. With her immortal soul in peril, she knew she would burn in hell for all eternity. Now, if Amy were severely mentally ill, I think we would hear more references to this and more details, and this is absent from the primary source records that we have. Now, just over two weeks before Amy's death, she wrote a note about having a new dressmaid. Quote, Edney, this shall be to desire you to take the pains from me as to make this gown of velvet which I will send you such a collar as you made my russet taffeta gown. I will see you discharged for all. I pray you, let it be done with as much speed as you can, and I bid you most heartfully farewell from Cumnor, this 24th of August. Your assured friend, Amy Dudley, end quote. Sixteen days later, Amy dies. So clearly, I think Amy has a purpose in mind for her new velvet gown, and some believe this shows that she was looking forward to the future. Shopping therapy? Well, maybe. But I know better to think that buying new clothes means that one is optimistic and emotionally stable. But this is a rush order. Rushing for what? For who? Something is in her mind here, and I think it is a significant 
clue. Four months after Amy's death, the speculation is still an international topic. Quadro writes to King Philip II of Spain. He discussed all this with nobleman Henry Sidney, who served the Queen as her Lord Deputy in Ireland. Quote, as regards the death of the wife, he is certain it is accidental, although he knew that public opinion held to the contrary. I told him, if what he said were true, the evil was far less. For, if murder had been committed, God would never help nor fail to punish so abominable a crime. It would be difficult for Lord Robert to make things appear as he represented them. He answered it was quite true that no one believed it, and that even preachers in their pulpits discoursed on the matter in a way that was prejudicial to the honor of the Queen. End quote. Oof. The gossip is not dying down. No pun intended. Moving ahead a year, September 1561, the Earl of Arundel, Henry Fitzlon, wants the case reopened. This is when the verdict of the jurors is revealed. So to be fair, while Arundel is old enough to be Elizabeth I's father, he hoped to marry her himself. A premier lord in the land, he believed that if she should choose to marry an Englishman, well, it should certainly be him and not Robert Dudley. Earlier, a steward of Arundel swore, quote, Wherefore I would that he, meaning Robert Dudley, had been put to death with his father, or that some ruffian would have dispatched him by the ways he hath gone, with some dagger or gun, end quote. God, these people want Robert killed. After the Lady Jane Gregg coup, Arundel played a role in putting Mary I on the throne and now feared that Robert would have too much power if he married her sister, Queen Elizabeth. The question has to be asked, was Arundel fearful that Dudley would take revenge on him, who had helped orchestrate his father, brother, and sister-in-law's executions? So maybe this is Arundel's motivation for insisting the inquiry be opened? While Robert Dudley would have words with Arundel, he took no action to stop him from reinvestigating Amy's death, and nothing new came from Arundel's efforts. I mention this because emotions are still running very high. This is no light matter. It is serious politics being played out before all of Europe. It turns out that Amy's half-brother, John Appleyard, was not totally convinced it was an accidental fall either. When the news of Amy's death reached Robert, he immediately wrote to her brother, and as the investigation moved forward, John indicated that he was, quote, moved to search for further answers to his sister's death, end quote. Appleyard later told Thomas Blount, same guy, Robert's cousin, this story. While Appleyard was in the garden at Hampton Court, one of the Queen's residences, a letter was delivered to him and it urged him to come alone, that a man had something important to say to him. After greatly debating whether or not to go, John Appleyard did, and he found a man who appeared to be a merchant. He greeted him and said that while they were not personally acquainted, the merchant had, quote, matters of great weight and secrecy to impart with you, the while, if you promise to keep it private, end quote. Well, Appleyard agreed and listened. The merchant was a messenger sent from certain gentlemen who he named and who knew that John was not being told the truth by Robert Dudley. If John would join them, they would see that the charges were filed and John should never lack in gold or silver. He need only come to such and such a house and he'd be given a lot of money as the death of Amy is the only hindrance to the queen's marriage. Well, this is an interesting proposal, obviously, by the enemies of Robert Dudley, right? Well, Appleyard replied, quote, that Lord Robert is a better lord than his reputation shows, and he would neither for gold or for friendship stand against him, end quote. And then saying no, John Appleyard turned and left. Well, Blount asked him, wait a minute, wait a minute, who, who are these guys? But John declined to say. But there was a witness to this discussion, so it did take place. 
Sir William Huggins, who happened to be staying at Hampton Court, saw the meeting, and these nobles were, quote, Norfolk, Sussex, Tomage Hennigan, and others, end quote. All right, hold up. These are big, important players in the Tudor court. So it seems to me that there is a plot afoot against Dudley to implicate him in Amy's murder. John Appleyard now went to see Robert, who became so angry with Appleyard that Thomas Blount thought, quote, if they had been alone, he would have drawn his sword upon him. He bade him depart, and to Blount said that he was a very villain, end quote. Now, this mess results in Appleyard being arrested and sent to flee to prison because he had named lords of the realm as plotters, and John would be examined by the Queen's Council. Elizabeth's chief secretary and advisor, William Cecil, responds to Appleyard for the council. Cecil wanted to know three things. One, what Appleyard had told the Earl of Leicester, who is Robert Dudley, about the Duke of Norfolk, the Duke of Sussex, etc., in an effort to stir up matters against Robert Dudley for the death of his wife. Second, what motivated Appleyard to promote the idea that Amy Dudley, his sister, was murdered? And finally, did Appleyard accept the decision made by the coroner and jury? Appleyard responded, but he didn't answer these three questions. Instead, he asked that the whole matter be dropped, and he would appreciate being given a copy of the coroner's report and believed, quote, the verdict I do find not only such proofs testified under the oaths of 15 persons, how my late sister by misfortune happened in death and has fully and clearly satisfied him. And therefore, my lords, commend her soul to God. I have not further to say of that cause, end quote. Point of note, he also wanted to be released from prison. He's now sick and he is broke. Well, the council would then report that John Appleyard and Robert Dudley spoke of Amy's death, that he believed Robert, the Earl of Leicester, to be innocent. He also believed that it would be simple enough to find the offenders, thinking his sister had been murdered. But Dudley had discouraged him because the lawful jury had already determined this as an accident. Appleyard also realized he had severely erred in mentioning the names of important nobles. Quote, this loss of credit with such personages doth drench him in despair. His faults are committed against two noble gentlemen, and he has provoked justly their ires. End quote. Well, it sounds like John Appleyard created a noble hornet's nest and got stung badly. And the council seems to be making up some stuff too. So was Appleyard satisfied with the conclusion that it was an accident? Or was he convinced by the powers to be to drop the matter or stay sick and be in prison? Something changed his mind. And I can guess that being tossed into prison for raising the issue of super influential nobles plotting nefariously might be the reason for it. They certainly weren't tossed in prison and didn't have to answer questions before the council. So this doesn't sound like it went very well for Appleyard. All right, so we've explored accident, check. Suicide, check. Mental illness, check. And now we're getting to homicide. There are people who have a motive to kill Amy Dudley, and we shall examine each one thoroughly and try to identify motives and gain. Who do you start with? The husband, Robert Dudley, the prime suspect. We've already learned a lot about Robert's actions, reactions, correspondence in the immediate days prior to Amy's death and afterward. As usual, some who observed him thought his behavior for a man who had just lost his wife wasn't right, which we often hear, but we just don't know how someone is supposed to react to something like this. Robert did not go to Amy's funeral, nor did he build a memorial to her. But remember, it's not the custom for spouses to attend their husbands' or wives' funerals in the 16th century. But we also know from his own hand, self-preservation was definitely on his mind, immediately learning Amy was dead. We also know that on this day of the fair, Amy kicked everyone out of the house, which was unusual behavior for her. We know she ordered this new gown to be made in haste two weeks prior to her death, 
Was she expecting Robert to visit? Well, I would think a new gown indicates this is a high-ranking person coming. From past behavior, when Robert visited his wife, he would send cooks and food ahead of him, and this did not happen in early September 1560. But would he do this if he planned to rid himself of Amy? Probably not. Not if he's going to get away with this. If Robert is secretly visiting, would Amy have told her close and beloved companion, Mrs. Pinkto? No, I think she would follow Robert's instructions to the letter. But Robert has an alibi. He is at court in Windsor, seen by hundreds of witnesses, so he certainly did not come to Comner Place and kill Amy. That is definitive. Did Robert Dudley hire or send someone to kill Amy for him on a day when he had an airtight alibi? Well, perhaps. But Robert's immediate response was to push for this to be a thorough investigation with competent men, and he was insistent upon it. Could he be so sure that any accomplice would not be traced back to him? And many wanted a bad outcome for Dudley, as we see with Northfolk and Sussex. While Robert's reaction to Amy's death, some said was cold, to me it appears to be genuine shock, tempered by a desire to have the jury get to the bottom of the matter and for John Appleyard to witness the inquest, even if they deduced it was a work of villainy. And he wants to maintain his influential relationship with the Queen. When they determined it was an accident, Dudley again pushed for this to be double-checked so that no one could later refute the jury's conclusions. It was Elizabeth who issued a veto, saying that it was too much and to let the matter rest. Now, Amy died in 1560, two years after Elizabeth came to the throne. Why would Robert wait until rumors and gossip about him and the queen were rampant to commit murder? Why not kill her before trouble was made? Sarah Beth Watkins suggests that, quote, if Amy had died at the start of Elizabeth's reign, it would not have caused the scandal that it did in 1560, end quote. Well, I agree, but who knew that it would become such a huge scandal back in 1558? Now, Robert Dudley did not poison his wife, as rumors suggest. The fact is, she died of a broken neck. If she had died of natural causes, like the breast malady, Robert would have been free to marry the queen. The way she died, shrouded in suspicion, tarnished his reputation so that this marriage could never happen. Historian James Anthony Frown writes in 1863, and he suggests a different conclusion. Quote, Eventually, after an investigation apparently without precedent for the strictness with which it was conducted, the jury returned a verdict of accidental death, and Robert Dudley was formally acquitted. Yet, the conclusion was evidently of a kind which would not silence suspicion. It wasn't proved that Lady Dudley had been murdered, but the cause of death was still left to conjecture. The conclusion seems inevitable that all thought that Dudley was innocent of direct participation in the crime and the unhappy lady was sacrificed to his ambition. She was murdered by persons who hoped to profit by his elevation to the throne, end quote. So it was Robert's friends who killed Amy for him to clear his path to the throne. Well, if that was the goal, it was botched because it really didn't work. Because there's way too much mystery, too far too many unanswered questions. The scene and information is too sterile to satisfy anyone, which is why we're still discussing this 500 years later. Now, in 1978, an incomplete history was unearthed the Journal of Matters of State. Now, this provides some succinct comments on the political situation during Edward VI's reign. It also includes some text documenting events from the early years of Elizabeth's reign, and this is the part that is relevant to us. This points to another suspect, possibly Robert Dudley's accomplice, his friend, Sir Richard Verney. I mentioned Richard Verney before, Amy had spent time living at Sir Richard Verney's home at Compton Verney before heading to Cumnor Place. Quote, 
If Lord Robert's wife break her neck at Foster's house in Oxfordshire, her gentlewoman being gone forth to a fair, how be it it was though she was slain, for Sir Verney was there that day, and whilst the deed was done, Verney was going over the fair and tarried there, for his man, who at length came, and said, Why tarry thou? He answered, Should I come before I had done? Hast thou done? quoth Verney. Yea, quoth the man, I have made it sure. End quote. This conversation is between Verney and a friend of his at the fair. The problem is, the author of this journal is probably John Hale, who was not on the site in person, so he couldn't know exactly what was said by anybody. So this is gossip, really hearsay, and Hale admits to not even knowing Lord Robert Dudley personally. Now, almost 24 years after Amy's demise, Lester's Commonwealth is printed. It is a very slanderous hit piece at best. It also speculates that Sir Richard Verney is the culprit. However, this text is not derived from the Journal of Matters of State because the journal was not in public circulation. So Lester's Commonwealth came about separately and independently while both point the finger at Sir Richard Verney. Lester's Commonwealth reads, quote, Verney, who by commandment remained with her that day alone, with one man only, had sent away all of her servants from her to the market. He, with his man, can tell how she died, which man, being taken afterwards for a felony and offering to publish the manner of said murder, was made away privily in the prison, and Sir Richard himself, dying about the same time in London, cried piteously and said to a gentleman of worship not long before his death that all the devils in hell did tear him in pieces. End quote. Again, we have Verney and his man at the scene, alone with Amy, and later his man jailed and killed, and Verney on his deathbed, bemoaning that he's going to be roasting in hell. I assume it's for murdering Amy, but I doubt it. Fact. Five months before Amy's death, Verney writes to Robert Dudley that he is sick and unable to travel to carry out his duty. Had he recovered five months later, went off to Cumnor Place, and killed Amy for Robert. Unlikely. The Journal of Matters of State reads that in 1562, so at most two years after Amy's death, quote, this woman was viewed by the coroner's quest, whereas one Smythe was foreman, who was the queen's man. It was found by this inquest that she was the cause of her own death, falling down a pair of stairs, which by report was but eight steps. But the people say she was killed by reason. He forsook her company without cause and left her first at Hyde House, where it said she was poisoned. And then for that cause, he desired, she might no longer tarry in his house. And from thence, she was removed to Varney's house, and so at length to Forster's house. End quote. Well, what's accurate here? While well, Amy did complain of being poisoned, which seems unfounded, the foreman named Smythe is also accurate. And in fact, Robert Dudley writes to his cousin Thomas Blount that he had a letter from Smythe, the foreman of the jury, and Smythe assures Robert that they are being diligent and circumspect in their investigation, and it appears to be misfortune. Is Smythe the queen's man? I don't know. Is Smythe just calming an anxious husband in mourning? Or had Elizabeth picked her man and used her power and influence over him so that the jury's finding would come to a favorable conclusion? Well, if one were smart, everyone was the queen's man. And this is a common expression, not a conspiracy factor. And there is no evidence that the court or jury looked into Richard Verney as the assassin. He wasn't even on their radar. Now, Dudley and Verney remain on good terms for the remainder of Verney's life. And he died around 1566. So I cannot put a lot of weight into Lester's Commonwealth which is also written 25 years later 
with an agenda to make Robert Dudley look bad by an author who did not know any of the principles in the case. Sounds like they're making up shit. I have to conclude it is unlikely that Robert Dudley was stupid enough to kill Amy when she may have had a fatal disease that would take its natural course, letting God's will determine if he was a valid husband for the Queen of England. Hiring a killer also seems incredibly risky, who would have snuck in during the daylight hours, risking being seen. Thus, I rule out Robert Dudley as the murderer. And I will pause here until next time, when we will explore the others who had a motive to kill Amy Robstart, Lady Dudley. Murder bookies, do you think it's accident, suicide, or murder? And do you agree with my analysis? Reach out to me, jill at murdershelfbookclub.com, and let me know. And I can now announce my next book is Dismembered by Susan D. Mustafa and Sue Israel. Thank you, Patreon subscribers, for helping to pick out this one. You did great. Over a decade in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, women were being hunted down, bludgeoned, and strangled. Bodies were found, each one carefully posed. Each was brutally mutilated. An arm here, a leg there, a tattoo. The killer was cutting his victims to pieces. When investigators finally caught the mild-mannered Star Trek fan, Sean Vincent Gillis, he couldn't wait to tell his story which shocked the seasoned veteran detectives. Sean told them every detail of his killings, and he smiled as he spoke. Thank you for listening. And right now, I need you to leave me a five-star review wherever you listen. It is so important in finding new murder bookies, so help me out if you can. As always, I am so appreciative that you give me your time and attention. It keeps me going. I see you as you hear me. Join me on Patreon, www.patreon.com backslash Murdershelf Book Club for our Zooms. Reach out to me on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter. I love hearing from you. And until next time, Murder Bookies, happy reading. Trust your gut. Source material, snack and drink information, portraits, family trees, diagrams, for the Death of Amy Robsart and Elizabethan Mystery Trilogy by Sarah Beth Watkins is found on my blog as well. Written and produced by Jill, all rights reserved, music by Carl Hosena, lyrics by Otto Harbach. <laughs>